So we're talking about Elijah. I was told that I had not articulated it very well. I'm not saying who. Um, But Elijah, we know his character. He's, He's a very devout man of God. It's so much that he knows who he is and he's able to face off against the evil forces in Israel, right? That be, being King Ahab. And so I, I, I'm not a fan of making Bible classes very historical all the time. Not, it's not a history lesson. However, in order to effectively understand what the Bible's trying to tell us, you're going to have to learn some history, right? And so part of this is in, in 1 Kings chapter 16, we're told that a, King Ahab takes the throne. And we, we're, well, the Bible says that King Ahab is the most Mm, anger-provoking to Yahweh that we know. In all the kings of Israel, King Ahab was the most uh, gruesome in the, in the fact that he was just the worst. He was the most evil. He was the one that caused God to be provoked to anger the most or the worst. So that's who we're dealing with here. That's who Elijah's confronting here. And so Jezebel's no better, right? Jezebel is actually the one that's influencing him to worship and promote Baal in Israel, right? This is really important stuff. So, um, Again, Ahab goes to serve Baal, Jezebel's God. This is, this is her stuff. And so this led him to serve and worship Baal so much that he would e- eventually erect an altar of Baal in Samaria. Okay, And he moves that forward. And so kind of something that we need to note is uh, many of us in here are probably married or have been married and whatnot, but people my age here, early 20s, college students and whatnot, who you marry matters. Who I marry matters right? Who we stay married to matters, right? I heard this from somebody. This is not my quote, so don't quote me on it. The biblical goal of marriage is not happiness. You look at the rest of the world, you go on anybody's Facebook posts, and what they're trying to find is happiness. But the biblical goal of marriage and anything that we as Christians do is holiness, And I think I would advocate, I would suggest and put forward that the reason why so many marriages end in divorce, tragically, is because we were all looking for happiness when we're called to holiness. And so King Ahab and Queen Jezebel are no different than us, or no different than this world, right? Because what they were looking for is happiness. And so, hey, I understand the mantra, um, happy wife, happy life, but it can become an idol, right? Just saying. Just saying. So, moving forward. Jezebel leads Ahab towards this, and it hardens his heart. Okay? This is significant. And so, Baal in this time is considered to be the god of storm, lightning, and rain, and whatnot. Uh, this is really significant. Baal even shows up back in uh, Moses' time in the Exodus. Right? I, I believe they call uh, the golden calf Baal or something when in the Mount Sinai scene. I could be wrong. You can correct me if, if I'm wrong there. But Baal shows up earlier in the Old Testament. And here comes Baal again. Baal comes in uh, all kinds of uh, forms. But you think about this. We're in, in the agricultural part of Arkansas, which actually produces quite a bit of agricultural uh, needs and proceeds for the rest of the country. Um, a lot of people in this time, in, in this time frame, in this, in this area, depended upon, quote-unquote, Baal. Because if he's the god of rain, then if you pray to the god of rain, then you'll get a good crop harvest at the end of the year, because your crops will produce, right? This is really significant and important, and it bears weight on these people's lives. And, uh, and so Elijah must find a way to expose Baalism. That's what people, some people have called this, Baalism. 
He's trying to expose it as a false entity and thereby prove God to be the true, living, and sovereign God in these people's minds. And so here we go. Elijah battles Baalism. Here he goes forward. So Elijah shows up to King Ahab unannounced, as I've said before, to make an announcement, and he's going to attack it at, at its theological center. If, if Baal is the god of rain, okay, there's going to be a drought, King Ahab. Don't know how long, but there's going to be a drought. And so Elijah, Elijah completely flees tells it to his face and then flees and the word of the Lord comes to him. And this is kind of interesting to note that we don't really know if God told him to go to King Ahab or not. Elijah just goes. He just confronts the king straight on, headstrong. So we don't really know. We can speculate and argue all day long, but we don't really know. All we do know is that the word of the Lord directs him from there to the brook where he's going to be fed by the ravens. And as Spencer brought up this morning, we had this discussion earlier this week, a flock of ravens is called an unkindness. You know what a flock of crows is called? It's worse than unkindness. It's called murder. It's weird. I don't know why. But you look at all the, the, the movies and, and you know depictions of like Transylvania or the creepy, spooky movies, there's always a crow or a raven flying around, right? At, right before they go into foreshadowing some type of murder or unkindness that's going to happen. It's just kind of interesting. And yet God uses, as Spencer pointed out this morning, God uses an unkindness to be kind to his people. Really interesting. I don't know what all the other significance is. We can, we can go through different things on that, but, you know, I mean, in Genesis chapter 8, Noah relied on a raven uh, going out to see if the floodwaters had succeeded or not. Um, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount will actually call our attention to the birds, right? Just the idea of a bird in general. He says, look around. Are you anxious? Look around at the birds. How they neither toil nor spin, and yet their Heavenly Father knows what they need and they're taken care of. How much more, how much more is he going to take care of you? Right? It's just interesting how God will use something what we consider so insignificant to provide something super significant uh, for us. And so this proves the power of our God, that he uses creation to provide for his people. And so Elijah dwells by the brook and drink, drinks from it for a period of time. We don't really know how long, right? Uh, in other places, we're told that this, is about, this drought's going to last for about three, three and a half years, but they don't exactly know it in the time. We know it for you know, future reference and whatnot. And so the brook dries up. And one of the questions you kind of have to wonder is, God, why would you let the brook dry up? Why can't Elijah just stay there and, and hide? And you know, the, the drought serves two significant purposes or symbolic purposes. Number one, well, first off, it seems as though God has failed, and so, but there's no rain in the land. That's what the Bible says. And, and so Elijah's now being impacted by the effects of his announcement. Right? It's interesting that Elijah would announce, King Ahab, there's not going to be any rain anymore for a little while, and flees. It's as if Elijah initiates this, and now he's having to suffer the consequences of his very own announcement. It's very interesting. It's very, Moses and Elijah are very parallel. If you look in Hebrews chapter 11, you'll find that by faith, Moses 
was willing to suffer with the, with the, in the, suffer in the sufferings with the people of God rather than bask in the pleasures of the palace in Egypt. Right? And Elijah, in the same way, is suffering with the rest of Israel. Right? It, it, I mean, no, leaders do not suffer without their people. Or leaders do not... You think about that. I mean, I was trying to think of a way to say that. Elijah is not saying like a parent-child dynamic, you know, time out. How many of us have been in time out before? Anybody? Nobody? You were all really good. Really? I don't believe that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had, well, I had whippings and I had timeouts too, but uh, my mom said she, uh, I was either going to be the best Christian or the worst criminal, and she was that line, and, and so I'd, I'd hopefully we're turning out okay, but you know, the idea of timeout is like, okay, the parent tells the kid, okay, go sit in timeout and think about what you've done, stare at the corner or whatever, and the parent goes and gets to do whatever they want. That's not the case with Elijah here, because Elijah, what Elijah's doing is he's sitting in timeout with Israel, because now the brook's drying up. And in my mind, I'm thinking this is a way to also get Elijah to be motivated to go somewhere else. And so the word of the Lord comes to him again and says, now go to Zarephath. Go to Zarephath. And notice Elijah's immediate obedience. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, the Lord said, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. A little bit about Zarephath. Zarephath is a major port city along the Mediterranean Sea. It was a harbor city in the 13th century BC. Uh, it's a very big flourishing and manufacturing industrial center, right? Maybe like the port of New Orleans, what we think about, really big river system and whatnot in the Mississippi River. Uh, this is a major port city, and if that goes down, then a lot of trade and commerce goes down too, and yet the drought has come to Bales territory. And so Elijah goes to Zarephath, but it's also being reigned by Jezebel's father, so Ahab's father-in-law. And for Elijah, that is dangerous. That's, this is enemy territory here. And yet it's Baal's, quote-unquote, Baal's territory. And so now the drought has come into the heart and center of Baal's territory. And so widows in this time, Elijah meets a widow. Widows in this time, I mean, considered to be some of the more insignificant people in, in that time, in that time frame. Um, I'm not really sure what we would consider widows to be today, but there's a reason why God cares about orphans and widows in James chapter 1. It's because they didn't have any inheritance rights usually to their name, and usually they didn't, they didn't bring a whole lot to the table. And what they're depending upon is other people's charity to keep them alive until their last breath. take care of the orphans and widows. And so God doesn't care just about kings, but he cares about the widows too. This is significant. No matter how worthless or less valuable you feel, God cares about you. 
Doesn't matter what title or status or label you put on yourself, God cares about you. If he cares about the widows, he cares about you. So Elijah finds this widow at the city's gate, and, he, and it's kind of interesting, you know, a lot of us in our southern hospitality mindset, we let other people initiate for us, but Elijah's the one that initiates this. He says, well, bring me some water. I'm parched, I'm famished, I've taken a long journey. Bring me something, I need this. And so she goes and gets him some water, and on the way, he, she says, or he says, actually, bring me a morsel of bread, too. I am starving. And she says, look, as the Lord your God lives, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything. I have nothing worthwhile. And he says, bring it anyways. And she brings it. She obeys Elijah. And by the way, this is a foreign woman. This is an unbeliever. This is a non-Israelite. This is, quote, unquote, a Gentile. And yet she obeys Elijah. And then uh, God's abundance flows. And her, her household, and Elijah, they all bask in the abundance of God's grace right there. Pretty interesting. And just kind of kind of to wrap up, kind of with our time tonight. We got a couple minutes. I really appreciated Spencer's application this morning on we need more people being in Elijah. Like we need more people being willing to call out what idolatry actually is and calling it to its face and fleeing if that's what it takes. Right? There's all kinds of idols in this world, all kinds of idols that we face today. One of them being, actually, I would advocate in my personal opinion slash judgment that the biggest idol that we will ever battle in our lifetimes is ourselves. It's, it's not the phone, it's not necessarily the, I mean, whatever other list you can go down. It, it could be your family, it could be anything. You can make anything an idol. Tim Keller, before, uh, in one of his books, Counterfeit Gods, he says the human heart is an idol factory. In other words, we're just producing and manufacturing things, trying to suffice whatever that longing inside is, and yet we, we, look to the, uh, we look to the resource as the source of fulfillment. We do this all the time and don't even realize it, but I would advocate that the strongest idol that we will ever have to battle or overcome is that of ourself. And you look at our culture today, how, in, how overly therapeutic it can be, how overly selfish it can be, you just go on Facebook. Just scroll on Facebook. Look at how selfish we are. Look how self-absorbed we are. Technology is a great tool, and I'm not trying to diminish it. I'm just saying you can just see idolatry right there in front of us. We even have American Idol as, a, as an actual show. It's actually kind of funny. It, sidebar, and then we're getting to application key points. I'm from Conway, Arkansas, and in, back in 2009, I was in the second grade. That's dating myself and probably some of us in here. In 2009, we had, a, we had someone from Conway on American Idol, and he went and ended up being in the finalist, and he actually won it. His name's Chris Allen. And, uh, and so I remember, I remember wearing the shirts, guys. I remember wearing the Chris Allen neon shirt. It was green around, blue in the middle, white lettering. I remember, I remember seeing that shirt all around Conway. 
you couldn't go down the street without seeing Chris Allen here, Chris Allen there. Vote Chris Allen on American Idol. And we were just on the edge of our seats all the time. And I just, I, I just look at that. And, and for a time, we were obsessed with it. it. It occupied all of our conversation, all of our thoughts, just over and over again. And I couldn't help but think that looking back on that, I didn't know any better necessarily as a nine-year-old kid, but maybe the city of Conway could have fallen into a little bit of idolatry there, ironically with American Idol. So I, let's close with some key points here. First off, God calls us to the ordinary, and he will use it to bless us in extraordinary ways. I, I think so much about Acts chapter 4. You remember when Peter and John are in, uh, they, they've healed this, man, this lame man, and, and he's walking and leaping and praising God, and they, they stand before the Sanhedrin, and, uh, and, and so they, the Sanhedrin asked Peter and John, in what name, by what power did you do this? And Peter preaches to them, and, and you know, there's no other name under heaven by men, to which be saved. You know, this being Jesus. In verse 13, when, when the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John and saw and could tell that they were uneducated, common men, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I think about the widow in this story. God calls it, or even Elijah, the simple obedience of Elijah, the simple obedience of the ravens, the simple obedience of the widow God calls us to the ordinary. Just do what I said. Focus on the ordinary. Don't focus on what everybody else is doing. Don't focus on what other churches are doing. Don't focus on what everyone else in the world is doing on Facebook. Focus on me. Focus on the ordinary, and I will bless you in extraordinary ways. But you've got to focus on me. Otherwise, nothing else makes sense. You're going to substitute the source for the resource. Are you tracking with me? Secondly, obedience leads to providence. This story does not occur, it doesn't flow very well if Elijah doesn't obey God. Elijah will probably get beheaded if he doesn't obey God. Elijah does not get fed if the ravens don't obey. The widow does not have an abundance for her son if she does not obey Elijah. It's almost this trifold thing. Obedience leads to divine providence. I'm not saying we're working for our salvation, but there are so many blessings and, and, and uh, what's the word? There is so much provision and blessings in the commandments of God if we're just willing to walk through the door for them. And God is looking to bless you, but you've got to walk through the door. You've got to be willing to be obedient because obedience leads to providence. You think about Paul with the Philippian church. He's rotting in prison, yet he's so abundant, and they're taking care of him. You think about him with the Corinthians, and you even think about feeding the 5,000, the little kid bringing his Lunchable, what we would consider a Lunchable. He brings it to Jesus, and yet multiplies all of this to feed 5,000 and more, where there's 12 baskets left over. If you bring what you got, God will bless it. We just got to bring what we have. Something that I think really is important is God will always provide for his people, question is, are we focused on being his people? Because if we're trying to be everything else, we get scattered, we get confused, but if we're focused on being his people, God will provide for his people. We just got to be focused on being his people.
That's the ordinary. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of the King. That's where I stand. I don't want to be known as someone who did all these great things and was quote-unquote successful if it doesn't mean that I don't get to be with Jesus. Are we people like that? Or do we like the labels? Do we like the counter, counter superficial labels that we can put on ourselves but not and really just be dying inside? God wants to bless his people. God looks to bless his people, but we've got to be focused on being his people. And then fourthly, bring what you have, rain or shine, drought or hurricane, bring what you got. Spencer took the approach this morning on we need to be Elijah. But how many of us today, and I'm not knocking that application, that's a great application, we need people calling out idolatry in its face. How many of us, though, feel qualified to go to a King Ahab and tell it like it is and then go and hide and and depend upon God like Elijah did? How many of us would say we are there in our faith right now? My point proven. That's very true. Most of us, I would say, probably feel like the widow. We feel like we don't contribute a lot. We don't feel significant. We are on our last leg spiritually, and we're just looking to have our last meal and go in peace. But Elijah does something significant. He says to the widow, whatever her name was, Bring me what you have. Bring me that jar, jar of oil, the jar of flour and whatnot. There'll be enough as the Lord lives. And so my question and my challenge for you is this, and myself as well. What is that jar of flour, what's that jar of oil that you are holding back from God? Because until until she surrenders that, the providence doesn't flow. Until she surrenders, she doesn't feel the benefits or blessings that God is going to provide for her. It's only after surrender. And so what are we still needing to surrender as people of God to be in better relationship with God? If God can do this with a foreign, non-Israelite, Gentile woman, a pagan, how much more can he do it with his people? If they're willing to surrender. You know what baptism is? Repentance and baptism is just surrender. That's why I hate the argument about whether or not baptism is a work or not. It's because you are literally saying, I surrender, and I, that you fall back. And you, let, you immerse yourself in God. And God immerses himself in you. And you surrender and say, I'm waving the white flag, and I'm following him. So often, though, we don't really think about surrender after that. Baptism is a great reference point, but if we don't surrender after, I mean, it's, it's, what are we doing? So, what's, in your jar, what's your jar of oil, what's your jar of flour that you need to surrender to God? And how can you take that throughout the rest of the story of Elijah? Because if, you, if you're willing to surrender this jar of flour, this jar of oil, you will stand the contest on Carmel. You need only surrender. Thank you for your time tonight.